1: Is not going to be okay with a one-sided relationship. You're not going to be like okay with the one friend doing everything and just be like sitting resting on your laurels. Like yeah, this is cool. You're going to feel like guilty and not a sense of like this is not okay. I need to pour back. Mm-hmm. So if anyone's like become okay with this, it's indicating a degree of illness or disease and and a learned behavior in them. So either you stop over-functioning and you allow yourself to express your feelings without blame, without saying the word you, I'm feeling this, this is what I desire for my life. And you allow someone to show you whether or not they're capable of that. So you learn if it's a desert because you have been blocking someone giving to you, or you learn if it's just a desert and you need to hop on a plane and get to a different kind of environment.
0: Hey, U-Turners, it's Ash here, and I'm so excited to be on the love category this week talking about, I hate to say it's one of my favorite topics, but I just think it's such a high-impact topic, and it's what the signs are of an unhealthy relationship and also the signs of a healthy relationship, and I thought it would be perfect to bring Tiffany Louise on. She's a coach, a speaker, an author, an LCSW, and her mission is to help so many people create healthier relationships, both with themselves and then, of course, as a result, with others, and um, she's going to talk about some signs that you can use and indicate for unhealthy relationships and also healthy ones. And of course, I'm going to ask her about her
1: story. Tiffany, thank you so much for being here with me. Well, it's so happy to be here with you. And we have friends in common. So this is like a full circle moment because I've heard your name so much and now we're meeting. So thank you for having me.
0: Do you know it's so funny? I just started following you on Instagram like a couple months ago and I was like, does she know that I know her? Like, does she know me? Because
1: I know her. I didn't you know? even know you were following me. And then I got your DM and I was like... I've heard her name. Yeah. i got to follow her back. So that's Small so work,
0: love funny. Yeah, me too. It is. We really have such a beautiful group of women. And whenever somebody brings somebody's name up to the extent that I've heard yours, it just means something. So really Agreed. excited. Um, and as far as your story goes, like, I know that, you know, everybody has a different reason that they're called to do, whether they're a therapist, LCSW, you know, all of this sort of work. What was it that got you the most interested in healing?
1: Well, and I've shared this story before, but so people repeat listening, but it's always a good one to share. So I, my mother was ahead of her time and she put me in therapy when I was three years old, when my parents were getting divorced, she herself went to treatment. It's She's given me permission to share this story mm-hmm. for codependency, which is freaking unheard of. People go to al they go, you know, to individual therapy, but very rarely do they go and do the work to recognize Hey, I'm in this unhealthy relationships you know, issue. My partner is in active addiction or struggling with addiction. And I have become sick as a result of my relationship with this person. And how can I take responsibility? So she did that work. She put me and my sisters in therapy from the moment I can remember. So it's, so for me, it's as natural as just like breathing, right? From, from the time I was young, I learned you're going to struggle. Things will be, you know, happen in life but there's a place and an outlet and you can talk about it and it's normal to talk about it and it will get better. Mm. So for as long as I, you know, could remember what I wanted to do, this just came so naturally to me. And because I had struggled and suffered, the beautiful blessing of that is that I didn't really have a brain that functioned in judgment. I had probably to the extreme compassion and empathy right those of us who are highly sensitive mm-hmm. um and empaths and so it was just natural for me to listen to people and understand them and I could in, very intuitively sense into what they've been through um so even though I was a dancer and I had opportunities to like get scholarships and go to LA and New York I knew this was what I wanted to do so I think wow. those formative years really shaped that for me. Mm.
0: And how do you manage your energy? Because I know that when people, when you're highly sensitive and people are sharing so much with you that, um, your energy is everything and being able to be there for them, being able to be there for you. Like, what are some ways that you keep your energy high? Like, are all of these
1: conversations just by nature energizing? Yeah, they, they can, and they can't be, I yeah. have, and believe me, this has taken 20 years of a lot of work. And I finally reached a point in the last you know, five where I've Recognize when I am, there's a difference between being highly sensitive and taking responsibility. And I've really gotten to a point in my healing where I've understood that I do no one any favors for taking, by taking responsibility for their energy. I can hold space for it. I can be present to it. I can empathize with it. But when I wear it, when I take it on, that is something, first of all, anyone who's in a healthy place would never request of somebody else, right? Two, it does not help me in helping them see the solution. So for me, it's been a very artful education and learning how to be present to someone and to hold space for what they're experiencing while not wearing it, owning it, metabolizing it. And the way that I do that personally is I allow my faith to be the intercessor. So I give whatever I'm feeling up out to my higher power, which I call God, because whenever I'm acting or believing that I'm the only source, I'm out of connection with my source. So those, those things, recognizing when I'm owning it, when I'm activated and releasing that, allowing them to, you know, have this experience. I've also learned too, and this is another point that, and and we'll talk about this more when we talk about unhealthy relationships, like we make suffering wrong. And while suffering is highly uncomfortable, it's not necessarily wrong. It can be incredibly helpful and and a critical component to our healing. So I've also seen enough suffering in my 20 year career to know that sometimes in our deepest pain, the biggest transformations are happening. Mm -hmm. So I'm also also careful when witnessing suffering to not create that story around it Mm -hmm. um, and to allow it to be what it is intended to be and, and to be the source that I'm meant to be in that moment, but then also give it up to something greater. So long-winded answer, but that's how I navigate the energy exchange.
0: Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's just something that I know that therapists tend to burn out, you know, coaches if they don't manage their energy. So I think it's really powerful whenever one is really lit up by the work and they still have energy, you know, to keep moving. Like I always want (laughs) to know what they're doing and, and then kind of getting into relationships. Like I know that you had a a challenging relationship. I've had one too um and it probably we all learn what unhealthy and healthy looks like usually when we experience it directly um mm-hmm. what was your experience in in experiencing an unhealthy relationship or what were some of the experiences you had that inspired you to start reaching for something different
1: well it's super funny because two hours before i were doing this recording my ex um and he gave me a call he's in um Kuwait right now teaching. And we're still very close friends. And we were together for many, many years and actually engaged. And he's a wonderful human, but we were not meant to be partners beyond what we were. And he was like, what are you talking about? I'm like relationships. He's like, Oh, you're going to give me a shout out. You know, some (laughs) stuff of our relationship was pretty unhealthy. I'm like, yeah, but, and so I like, this is what I like to say. There's a, people are not toxic. Patterns are toxic. And, you know, we all come with our own curriculum that we learned from our childhood, what's normal, what's, what feels familiar, what feels comfortable. And I definitely had my own curriculum of overfunctioning, of, you know, proving myself, of meeting all the needs for somebody else and struggling to take up space. And so, you know, that was definitely present in that very long-term relationship with the man I was talking to today, um, and we, and he's a wonderful human being and he had his own wounds. And so, you know, we went, navigated a lot of really like unhealthy patterns there. And I also had another long-term relationship where there were a lot of, a lot of that same stuff. I can only speak for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, me showing up, not feeling like my needs were being met, hoping that the crumbs that I was receiving would like, one day turn into so much more, um, t- taking, extreme care of the other person's feelings and needs and cheerleading while really just not taking up a lot of space. Mm-hmm. And it took me a really long time. And all of the while, you know, listen here, I'm a therapist, I'm coaching and I'm learning and I'm getting healthier. And I'm like, okay, this doesn't feel right. And I'm going to try this, learning new ways to communicate. So, I, you know, I always say we teach what we most need to learn. And I have a lot of years of experience of being in relationships that ultimately were teachers ultimately led me to the skills and tools and healing that I have now that I needed to, you know, I always say when you're not feeling chosen, it gives you the amazing opportunity to choose yourself yourself in a way that you would never be inspired to. Yeah. And I truly believe that. Well, and it's
0: a hundred percent. And it's also interesting because like you were saying, people aren't toxic patterns are. And I also know that some people are like a chemical reaction where for some reason, one person with another person is going to be totally fine. And the patterns look good. But then with another, there's all these other patterns is because it's two different people with two sets of needs. And it's like a chemical reaction. That's not going well. And I almost want to kind of start with what feels like um, narcissism and the, the most extreme, side of an unhealthy relationship because I think some people listening maybe don't realize they're in a dynamic with somebody who's a narcissist and maybe it's not their romantic partner it could just be like their mom or somebody at work and you know I can tell you Tiffany working in counterterrorism national security early in my career I encountered a lot of politicians and you know, people who I was like, is this like when I started learning about narcissism, I was like, I think I encountered a couple of these. Um, and I can't help but feel like the person is toxic. It doesn't even feel like the patterns, even though you're right. It's just, but it feels like the human being like the blood pumping through their veins feels like toxic when there's narcissism. So it feels almost like, um, and I hate to dehumanize any, it feels like an infection. Like it's just so, it's so deep in their expression that I almost don't know who they are. Um, Mm-hmm. when I look at it. So for anybody listening, could we kind of start with you talking about that rat experiment that you talked about on Instagram?
1: Yeah. So, um, this, and I, I worked for many years in behaviorism. I did applied behavioral analysis with children on the autism spectrum. I worked in addiction for a decade. So I have worked with people changing some of the hardest behaviors there are to change. And so I realized like, I've never really explained the powerful hook that intermittent reinforcement is. So the experiment that I sort of, you know, highlighted is imagine you're a rat and you're in a cage and you, a button pops up in the corner of your cage and you hit the button and every single time you hit the button, you get a treat. That's continuous reinforcement. And when that happens, because it's continuous, because the button delivers consistently, reliably, exactly what you expect it to, it's not as much of a powerful hook because you can live your life and you have trust that the button is going to deliver the treat. But when researchers put an intermittent rate of reinforcement on that lever, they they wondered what was going to happen. Is the rat going to be like annoyed with this because it's not consistent. They never know when they're going to get a treat and kind of ignore it and go on with their lives. Or is this going to be more addictive? And it was the latter. So they found that this the rat all of a sudden, two, 10, 20 times, five times, they would have to push it to get the same rate of reinforcement. And instead of becoming indifferent to that, they became highly attuned to that because they never knew the next time this was going to be reinforced for them they stopped taking care of themselves their health did you know deteriorated and all they all they did was spend time pushing on this button and this is often the pattern that happens when we are in relationship with people with something like a narcissistic personality disorder mm. their wounds their to- as you said very toxic behavioral patterns and ways of relating to people in the world create an unstable Inconsistent, unreliable emotional climate in a relationship. Mm. And therefore, we become the very hooked, we can become the very hooked, addicted rat pushing the button, waiting for the next dose of love, attention, affection, validation. Mm -hmm. Um, This
0: reminds me yeah, I had an episode with Ken Page who wrote Deeper Dating. And mm-hmm. he talked about how there's two types of attractions in that episode. He said there's attraction of inspiration and attraction of deprivation and it feels like this, um, an unstable emotional climate has the result of a lot of deprivation. Like you're, you're waiting, you're pressing buttons and the person's not responding. What do you think it is that keeps somebody, um, down to do that? Because I was in a toxic relationship once in my life. I'd always had such good guys. In fact, my first boyfriend was six years and he was the head of the Eagle scouts. So it's like, I just had like the literal boy scouts of guys. Mm -hmm. And, and then something came over me and it was like an eight month, period where I was in and out of a toxic relationship and I do think he ended up having narcissist personality like I think it was actual disorder level but I don't know if he ever got help with it um, because I know that the nature of a narcissist is they're not going to look for help Right. Um. But I would love to just kind of understand, like, what do you think happens for anybody listening right now where they're listening to us? And, you know, just because your relationship has an unstable climate doesn't mean he's a narcissist or that you are. No. But right. what do you think it is that keeps someone okay with that? Because to me, there's a level of self-esteem. And and for example, I have a girlfriend who I love a lot. Um. And, and she's been very up and down with her partner. And mm-hmm. she's a very stable person. But there's something about this dynamic that's bringing out an instability. Um, and I was just telling her the other day, you know, like I'm wondering about his self esteem. Like, why is he putting up with you being like this? Like, I love you, but, but if I want, if you were on the receiving end of how you're showing up with this person, I would tell you to leave. So what is it about his self esteem? That's keeping him with you. Do you know what I mean? Um, I do. So can you talk to me a little bit about what is it that keeps somebody pressing the button and not hearing back that deprivation?
1: There's, so there's a lot of layers to this. Um, it is, we can start with, there's, I'm going to start with attachment. So very often we have attachment modeled to us in our childhood and even in our early formative, you know, relationships and, and attachment theory sort of states that there's anxious, avoidant and securely attached folks. And generally the numbers say that about 50% of the population is securely attached. They're capable of meaningful relationships um, without leaving or or becoming overly enmeshed. And then the other 25 and other 25 are anxious and avoidant type attachment styles in the population. And oftentimes when we are starting a relationship with someone who's on the narcissism spectrum, this is something that I talk about often, it's not usually that they start out straight up asshole. Mm-hmm. They usually start out exceptional. Yeah. Um, with the love bombing, with the, you know, me and what does that mean? And the love bombing. Love, so love bombing is sort of an intense amount of love, just, I mean, imagine that it's like dropping bombs of love words and and promises for the future and, um, gifts and lavish trips and like, Oh my God, I've never met anybody like you. And you don't, no one even came close and you're my dream person. And, and so, and not always, not always does everyone start out like that, but it, it is a hallmark sort of characteristic of people on the spectrum uh, on the narcissism spectrum. So, if someone started out now, sometimes we have wounding that someone can straight up start out like an asshole and that'll still hook us. But most of the time people start out. (laughs) Sometimes we just love the asshole from the, from the get go. And that's because we've had, you know, we've learned that or whatever. That's what we feel worthy of. But oftentimes they start out good. And so that is why this type of reinforcement is super addicting an avoidant type personality now avoidant doesn't mean narcissist and narcissist doesn't tends to sometimes pattern avoidant, but they aren't, they can be, you know, one or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, But we get, There and then this person shows up and then retreats and then shows up and then retreats. And so this is when we, and you hear that language often like put up with. And if you had more self esteem, you wouldn't deal with this. And I have seen really strong completely esteemed women who did not have this pattern with their parents or in their childhood still find themselves in these relationships because your brain can't make sense of it. Your brain's like, hold on. In the beginning, this person was very loving and gave me these high highs. We had the oxytocin flowing. There was all these pheromones, all this chemistry and all this great. And then hold on, they're they're gone. And if you don't function that way, your brain can't understand how someone else's can. Mm-hmm. That is what I found is actually part of what keeps people stuck. They are trying to understand something, make sense of something, get data on something so they can figure it all out. They're trying to understand something that they're never going to understand because they're not, they don't show up in that way and their brain doesn't function in that way. So that is how people stay stuck. They see a couple months, even a year of Good behavior. They see parents who tolerated discomfort. They learned to people please and say the right thing in their childhood. And so they find themselves as an adult acting out what they knew, hooked on a rate of reinforcements from someone, waiting for the first couple months of someone's behavior to come back. And then, you know, someone who's on the narcissism spectrum, whether they do this purposefully or not, it really doesn't matter. You're still in the pattern. But they know how to give just enough to keep you hooked. The gaslighting, the manipulation, this is their the way they need to survive to feel safe and validated in the world. So they become experts at it. Mm -hmm. So they know the right things to say to when you're about to walk away to get you to come back because they need oftentimes those empathetic, you know, that narcissistic codependent patterning is really Strong because they're going to find the loveliest, most warm, and empathetic person to be a cheerleader for them, to meet their needs. And so, you know, it's a very complicated topic about why we say, but those are some of the dynamics that are at play.
0: Yeah. I mean, we all just, I mean, essentially one person is the warm mouse that keeps pressing the button and nothing Mm -hmm. happens and they get used to that. I wanted to know for everybody listening, and I know a lot of people know what gaslighting is, but some don't, what does it look like? Because I actually saw something and I kind of chuckled, which now I'm realizing is really dark, but it said like the rule of a narcissist is if you can't beat them, confuse them. Yes. So can we yes. talk about that? Like if you can't win them, confuse them. What does that mean as it relates to gaslighting and narcissists?
1: Well, because if if the truth is uncovered, the dynamic that is meeting to, that they're attempting to get their needs met will dissolve. So the there and I believe oftentimes these again, behaviors are just so innate and they've been practicing them for so long that they're not always conscious of them. I think sometimes in the most extreme forms, they believe what they're sharing. And, and, but, and also I don't spend a whole lot of time over in their head anymore in my Mm -hmm. work because Mm -hmm. that's not who I'm treating, but it, But so I'm treating the person or or coaching the person who's experiencing this. And so what does gaslighting look like? It looks like confusion. It looks like when one plus one equals 10. Mm -hmm. So if I always think like gaslighting, when you like, imagine there's a fog Mm -hmm. and you can kind of sort of vaguely make out like the street in front of you, but you don't quite know where you are. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what's happening. People, it's an example of this might look like. Hey, uh, are we going to hang out this weekend? I'm so excited. I'm going to take you to dinner. And then you get to this weekend. Oh, I can't wait for us to go to dinner. What are you, well, what are you talking about? I'm going out with my friends. I never told you that. Well, actually, you did on Wednesday. At, I remember I had the text. No, I, you misinterpreted that. I, you know that so-and-so is in town, and this is exactly what I was going to do. Come on. Why are you always on my ass? You're nagging me all the time, and like mm-hmm. I can never do anything, right? I mean, seriously, if you just can't be happy in this relationship, then what are we even doing here? That's gaslighting.
0: Yeah, totally. That was really beautiful, <sighs> Tiffany. That is not your first freaking rodeo. That was incredible. <laughs>
1: no, not, unfortunately not. But that leaves the the person on the receiving end of that confused. Like, well, hold on. I, am I losing my mind? And then all of a sudden comes the disparaging comments about like, oh, I, well, I don't want to be, yeah, maybe I am being like, you know, too jealous or like controlling. Oh, okay. Like, and that is the person's attempt to get what they want. Right. So it's the artful way they've learned to meet their needs and it is incredibly toxic. And this is where, when we are in relationships with people who are functioning this way, we start to lose touch with our own intuition, Mm -hmm. with our own truth and with our own sense of knowing, because we are one told that our sense of knowing is way Uh off base. Yep. And then, in order to not be all the things we would be made out to be jealous, insecure, controlling, we sort of try to course correct. And it's this vicious, very abu- abusive cycle of um, manipulation. Yeah. And so that's. That's, the, that's it the most ain't extreme.
0: no fun. Yeah, it doesn't no. sound like a good time. So kind of <laughs> when we kind of zoom out, and, and we'll talk a little more about unhealthy relationships, so when we zoom out of the extreme side, narcissism, yeah. you know, like you were talking about the unstable climate, the hot and the cold, there, there's no peace. Um, it could be verbal, emotional, physical, financial abuse. What does it look like when there's verbal abuse, emotional abuse, physical or financial? Can you give me an examples of those? Because I actually found financial abuse, abuse to be an interesting one. I haven't really heard that, but I know that it has to be true. What do all of these maybe look like because you you're so good at giving examples tiffany i was like okay yeah yeah, that was a beautiful
1: gaslighting conversation you just showed unfortunately yeah um but yeah so uh i mean verbal abuse is obviously any sort of defamation of character when you're expressing your needs wants desires it's it's met with you know, name calling, disparaging comments. I mean, verbal abuse is pretty, you know, standard. We kind of can experience that, but it can also be, uh, i.e. gaslighting, like, you know, oh my God, like always with the feelings and like you, you know, it, it can, I think when we, when it's happening in its extreme form, we know it, but when it's happening in these subtle, more vague ways. It's hard for us to sort of put our finger on, but I would say what is not verbal abuse is sometimes a more helpful thing to know. You feel safe to share your needs without fear of condemnation or retaliation, Ah, right? And so that's not verbal abuse, but Um, and then physical abuse, obviously any harm, any, any threats of harm, any hostility in, you know, in terms of this, someone's physical presence, um, it's sometimes, you know, that can be enough. And then financial abuse is an interesting one. And one that I'm, you know, starting to explore more, it's, it's where money is, um, used as a sort of a power, um, in a power struggle, you're either not given information or, you know investments or money is moved or used in ways that you're not privy to or you are only restricted if you're contributing, you're only restricted to this amount of um, money for your own personal use, it, it can come across in a lot of very mm. controlling and damaging ways. And financial abuse can have very long, just like any of these emotional or physical, um, abusive cycles, it can have very long term damaging effects, right? Mm. You know, I've had clients who've, you know, oh, yes, we're, well, I'm, I'm making this money and I'm paying the bills and that's not happening. And then this person is in debt and cleaning up the mess of the relationship fallout. So, you know, toxic patterns show up in a lot of areas. But what I found is that people struggle to know, like, where does this fall on the continuum? Like, is this toxic? Is this unhealthy? Should I expect more? Should I expect less? And I think that's the thing for those of us who have either never learned what healthy is, or are learning what that is for ourselves, learning, we can get other people to tell us, yes, this, this is healthier, this isn't, but we also have to learn to create that definition for mm-hmm. ourselves. What are my standards? I will not, I I can, cause this is the thing the, expecting someone to never be angry, that's thats going to make you crazy because that's impossible. Mm-hmm. But expecting someone to know how to respond, res- you can be respectful and angry. I think a lot of us are confused by, by, by yeah. that, but it's totally possible, yeah. right? So allowing someone else to have their emotional, you know, experience in this life, but your then expectation is if someone's angry, they are still able to treat me with respect in their anger. Mm-hmm. And when we haven't seen that, you know, you know, mirrored to us in our childhood, we often show up in relationships that look like that. And then we're like, what, what is normal to expect? Mm -hmm. That is what I think a lot of people are struggling to say. Well, especially
0: because I feel like we live in a world where people say there is no such thing as normal. And as much as that might be true, there are some set points of where something is not normal or like not healthy. Um, and you know, financial abuse, I think also when it comes to these empaths who are in narcissistic dynamics, it's, I think, really important to notice where you're kind of co-creating it. Because in my case, I was in a relationship with someone who, and, and I've heard all the stories, too. Like, I was just at my dermatologist who got a divorce saying that she had no idea he had a half million dollars of personal credit card debt when she married him. So it's like, uh-huh. that's abusive, like, to hold a secret. And then now it's her her fate, you know? Right. Um, but in my case it was like, I was always very generous and I remember being on a vacation with the guy that I believe has narcissism and he, he, he was like, Oh shoot, I forgot to pay my rent and I don't have Venmo and I need to get it to my roommate. So I was like, Oh, I have Venmo, you know? So I was like, no problem. And I sent the rent. you know, and he Mm -hmm. never came to me like, I'll pay you back or something. So it was just like $2,000 out of my bank account for, for nothing, you know? Um, so that kind of stuff. Um, and, and just being that helpful person all the time. Um What do you think it means when there's a one sided relationship? What does that look like? Do you think?
1: So, I see this as um, someone going to a well instead of drawing from it, they're pouring into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I always talk about empty wells, and this this one sided relationships are by you know definition not reciprocal. And it's where you are becoming the source of love and encouragement and of, you know, think of all the ways, you know, all the love languages you're doing acts of service. You're cheerleading them. You're, you know, rubbing their back and giving their, them the physical touch. And you are not feeling that. And I, always, this is a, an analogy that I love from a coach called Rory Ray. And she talks about the water wheel of a relationship. Oh, like, tell me imagine this like you know water wheel flowing like you flow into me and it's not that it's tit for tat but it's that you're assured that this investment here is going to flow back through the course of the relationship and 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 come back to you mm-hmm. and that is that is where like i'm giving here and then i'm giving here and then i appreciate you here it doesn't mean that in some relate like it's some relationships at times you're going to need more support, right? You might be going through a loss or a job thing. And then that other person has to rally, but you trust that then when that other partner rises up, that then they'll have, be able to pour back in. Mm-hmm. So one-sided relationships are where that that's not happening. It's we, and, and the, the hallmarks of being in the situation is always wanting more. Ah, right? That's a really good one. And I, I talked to a girlfriend cause
0: um, she, you know, I, I know a lot of women who've called off their wedding. Cause I called off one years ago and um they always I always kind of give this reference of like you feel like a desert that just needs some rain so bad Mm -hmm. you know yes yes. like you're just so dry like where is the rain and you're looking to your partner like can you just give me something and it just feels like every time you reach uh, or most of the times you reach and there's just nothing to be given to you there so really powerful this idea of the water wheel I love that and um kind of going into just some unhealthy patterns in general um what do you what does over functioning look like to you for anybody who maybe is listening and wondering if their relationship might be toxic or unhealthy for them uh-huh mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. well, this is something that I I've I've in recent years been really fascinated by masculine and feminine energy, Mm -hmm. and for like high level purposes, we can see masculine. We all have both, and this require, regardless of your you know identification we tend to sort of function in both, but one is a primary, right? So masculine is a doing energy. It has agency, it has movement and feminine energy definitely has movement, but it's a being. And what I have found, a lot of the clients that I work with are women looking to find partners and they are struggling with being in masculine energy while looking for a masculine energy man. Mm. And the challenge is, is masculine energy is necessary. It's helpful. It's wonderful. And so we'll hear this said a lot, like men can't handle, you know, successful women. No, not true. They can. What they can't handle is not feeling valued, needed, respected for their ideas, and generally bulldozed. And, And men or women, anyone who operates in masculine energy is not going to feel good meeting someone in masculine energy in that way. Mm -hmm. And so what what over-functioning does is not allows us to receive and not allow someone who, if that's the dynamic you're looking for, who is in masculine energy to give, which is where they fall in love. So, mm-hmm. over functioning is no, I, I got that. That's okay. Oh, I'll do this for you. Oh, you did something nice to, for me. Okay, I'll do this and I'll do it double. Um, saying all the right things, trying to be all the right things, it's a performance, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a performance with an intent to just be enough. But by virtue of being in performance, we're in our head mm-hmm. and we're not in our heart. Mm-hmm. And we can only connect and feel love and true connection. In our hearts, and so over functioning is is this is this short little trip from your your heart to your head, living in your head, putting on masks, you know, trying to be all things because then you'll feel safe and loved. And many of us learn this, you know. They say the people pleaser in a relationship was once the parent pleaser. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is something I've had to really, you know, work on and, and heal as well.
0: Mm, I, um, have, I actually have a question about this idea that we were sure. talking about of one-sided relationships too, where, cause, cause there's over-functioning is kind of creates a one-sided relationship, right? Like, yep. So, I was kind of talking about this idea of being a desert and it's one-sided and maybe you're over Maybe you're always pouring into the relationship and nothing feels like that water wheel where it's coming back to you. How do you kind of gauge when you're that desert wanting rain and it's one-sided versus maybe your partner's not ready for something that you're ready for? Like I know a lot of women are ready to get married. Um, or and I, and I hate to be gender stereotyping, but it feels true right. for me, my experience. and. And sometimes the man isn't ready yet. And I know that we're talking in hetero terms and I know some of right. some of my listeners are, you know, different um, preferences, but for the sake of this, it's like, how do you decide when your partner's simply not ready for something versus when you feel like a desert waiting for the rain, it's one-sided and it's not a match anymore.
1: I think the only way you get that information is by showing up and showing up in your truth. And we, cause we block ourselves from that information when we're over-functioning, because if we're over we are rowing the boat along and we don't actually know where we'd be if we weren't two oars in the water, slamming it out on the lake. Would would they be pitching in? How far would they be going with us if we weren't carrying the relationship? So the first thing is to stop, stop doing all the things that we're doing. We stop performing. We stop, you know, soliciting for, for bids for connection if someone is not moving towards us. Now, if we stop, and this is the scary thing about stopping, because this is what I found for most of my clients. You're afraid if you stop that the relationship will unravel and disintegrate. Ah. Well, if it does, that's what you needed to know. And you overfunctioning keeps you from facing that truth. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay. And then another, and side. then if you stop and they don't, it doesn't disintegrate. You allow them. Cause listen, think about this. Anybody who's healthy is not going to be okay with a one-sided relationship.
0: Hmm.
1: You're not going to be like, okay, with the one friend doing everything and just be like sitting, resting on your laurels. Like, yeah, this is cool. You're going to feel like guilty and not a sense of like, this is not okay. I need to pour back. Mm-hmm. So if anyone's like become okay with this, it's 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 indicating a degree of you know illness or disease and, and a learned behavior in them. So either you stop over functioning and you allow yourself to express your feelings without blame, without saying the word you, I'm feeling this. This is what I desire for my life. And you allow someone to show you whether or not they're capable of that. So you learn if it's a desert. Because you have been blocking someone giving to you, or you learn if it's just a desert and you need to hop on a plane and get to a different kind of environment.
0: Mm, that's so good. Okay. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit with narcissism and uncertainty. Um, can we talk a little bit more about that just in general as an unhealthy relationship indicator? Um, what does uncertainty really look like for somebody, would you say?
1: I think uncertainty is that. Is, is experiencing a relationship where you don't, you aren't certain that this, this person does not seem in this moment to be able to meet the needs that you have or the expectations that you have for a relationship. You are uncertain where you stand with them. And you are uncertain where the relationship is going. Mm. And I say this often: we need to feel to, if you're if you're now listen. Like you said, plenty of people are listening. It isn't their intention to have a committed, long term, monogamous, married relationship. But if it is, and that's your desired outcome, and you are consistently in a relationship where you, are, where you are not feeling chosen that way, and you are not certain if they will choose you that way, that is where we stay in toxic, unhealthy, abusive situations. Mm-hmm. And uncertainty is the intermittent button Yeah, taking us back to the rat in the cage. Uncertainty is I never know. Maybe if I just am super cute and friendly and funny with their family on Christmas, he'll see me in that light and then he'll choose me. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we push, push, push the button, but but if we aren't, and this is the thing that I also find is super fascinating. We have a really hard time saying what we want. Like somehow saying that you're a woman who wants marriage and commitment makes you desperate. That's so crazy, when huh? It's a bonkers because it actually makes you high value because it means you trust yourself enough to know what you want and you're confident enough to express that to someone else. And if a dude or a woman or whoever you want to partner with says, oh man, that's, that's pretty lame. Not for me. Like that's an indication oh, of where they are yeah. on their path. Right. <laughs> I so love if how you we just don't said express, that. I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to pass, like, sorry, you value yourself and you, you want someone who's going to commit to you like, oh, that's for losers. Like, but we don't say that. And so we stay in uncertainty when we, well, and obviously we can say what we want with someone who's on the narcissism spectrum and they're going to flat out lie to us. Yeah. Right. But for, for other people, like you said, who just maybe aren't available for this yet, we're so afraid of facing the truth because we don't want to feel the discomfort of having to do something about it. We don't actually show up and say what we want and need and, and, and express that mm-hmm. because we don't often have the words. So we get out of uncertainty when we get clear with what we want. And, and this is a scary place. Clarity with what you want is very vulnerable because there's no one there to blame. Once you face that, when you actually say, hold the phone, I want commitment. I actually do. And I want to be married and I want to work on having a family. And I need to own that because if I own that, then I'm going to show up to this relationship with different expectations. And then if he says he can't meet those needs or she can't meet those needs, then I'm going to have to move on. And that's very vulnerable because I'm going to have to move on with no one to blame and just... Owning what I want and being responsible for pursuing that. Right. Because somebody's not wrong for not wanting what you want. They're, They're just not. So. Yeah. That's just where they are on their journey. Yeah. And so oftentimes we sit there in the relationship wanting to shake people into being ready for what we're ready for mm-hmm. because we take it personally. It's mm-hmm. not personal, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's where they are on their journey. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So uncertainty can be really paralyzing, but we stay there because the discomfort of what we know feels better than the discomfort of facing what we have to face. If we get the information we're hiding from.
0: Yeah. The truth. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, but it also kind of still strikes me as like, sometimes people are very much on the same page. And I find, I find this conversation about needs and wants very um, challenging because, it's like mm-hmm. deciding what you actually need is so gray. What you need in one moment might change in the next, you know? Yes. Um, yes. The truth is always changing about what you want, what you're looking for, what you need, and you learn new things from new partners maybe or from yourself, and I'm still kind of struggling with, like, For somebody who's listening right now, it's like maybe, you know, they're dating somebody for a year and they're really ready to start talking about getting engaged and having kids. And maybe the partner really shuts down about that. They're just like so not ready for that conversation. Where do you draw the line of like, oh, these people are really a good match and they're working through this together versus
1: they just want different things. It's time to part ways. You know what I mean? I do. And I think this is the hardest thing. I agree with you that people get stuck in and they don't know when do I exit and when do I not? And how much more data do I need? Right. Exactly. How much more
0: data do I need? I think that's the question where it's like, when do you become the desert needing rain? And when are you just in a relationship with another human who has different wants and needs and trying to find cadence with them?
1: Yes. And how long do I hold out here Mm -hmm. waiting to see a shift? Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't have the specific answer answer for each individual. And yes, we can, you're absolutely right. We can learn about what we want and need as we move forward in a relationship. Like you might, that same person who now is ready for marriage and family at a year in might not have known that at a year. So that's taking personal responsibility, coming to the relationship and saying, I'm recognizing that this feeling and this yearning is growing in me. And again, know you, I am desiring a relationship where we are moving forward towards commitment towards this kind of partnership and i want and i understand that that we haven't spoke about that and i don't know where you're standing so i'd love to hear your thoughts right this isn't an ultimatum this isn't a blame game this is i really want to be curious and if someone can't even have that conversation then the onus is on us to decide just how long we are going to take our one valuable finite asset which is time and invest in a relationship with someone who is not showing us nor telling us that they are capable, willing, able, or, or are moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes we have to deal with what is, not the hope for what will be. And you'll hear from plenty of people, oh, well, I toughed it out and then we ended up married. And, and I find truly that that is more the exception than the rule. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we have to really get clear on what we want and how long we are willing to remain in this space without clear indication that we're moving towards what we want. And maybe, and I have clients who like, we will really work through this. They'll be like, you know what? I can probably say I can give six more months. I don't feel like that's too much time. I feel like then I'll like have given this relationship what I could, If I'm not feeling like it's shifting. Then I feel like I'll be, you know, whatever age it is, and I'll feel like it's time to move on. That's a personal decision. Um, But I agree. I think when we're sitting here, we're going, okay. And and, and this is especially, especially hard for people where it's not total, like, narcissism land. It's like, oh, well, they're good. I'm getting some things. This is, you know, like, meeting my needs in this way, but it's not meeting my needs in this way. And this takes a degree of responsibility for yourself, doing the work to say, what can I live with? What can't I, what are non-negotiables? What can I compromise on? And that's going to be different for every person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's so different. And kind of, I, I love this idea that we talked about before we started recording, you mentioned expectations can be a sign of an unhealthy relationship, you know, kind of like expectations of who the person should be or expectations of the person as, you know, themselves. Can you talk a little bit about expectations and when it becomes an indicator that maybe the relationship is toxic?
1: Right. And this can be on both sides. So oftentimes we're always like, oh, expectations on, you know, the person who's not meeting them. But they can also be unrealistic expectations that we are holding for someone else that they can't possibly meet and can't be responsible for. So it's, you know, two-sided. Um, and what I find is that we have oftentimes been sold an unrealistic set of expectations for what a relationship is going to do for us. And I think many of us, because we have not done the work to find our happiness, our fulfillment, our peace, our contentment within our own lives, we are outsourcing that responsibility to another person. And when we are outsourcing that responsibility, no one else can ever possibly meet those needs. So we live in chronic disappointment and chronic bid for getting that person to meet their need, our needs when they can't possibly. So I think... Expectations for a relationship. What I have learned, and this is just my lens. I work with thousands of people at this point. Done my own freaking personal work. Nobody can create your happiness. I think when we are moving into relationships that are the healthiest, we are saying, "This person is an individual, and I am one. I'm responsible for my happiness. This is an agreement. This is a partnership where we are working to grow, to heal, to be a water wheel." pour into one another and to experience life together. I'm okay on my own, but I choose a partnership. I want, I don't need. And that is a very different place to have expectations for a relationship, right? It means if you're having a day and you're bored, you don't suddenly say, he's not giving me enough attention. Why didn't he come home and say hi to me first? It's like, well, okay, what, what's going on with me? Get curious about this. What do I need to do to take care of my own needs? Is it chronic lack of interest or is it realistic to expect that someone every single day is a captive, you know, perched on the edge of their seat just to hear what was going on with my day, right? So we have to do that work to see, are we having expectations that, you know, Prince Charming or, you know, the, the woman is supposed to come into your life or whoever it is and everything's going to be magically better that is what creates a lot of strife,
0: mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's interesting with expectations because I think that a sign of a toxic relationship to, to me in my experience is somebody that, um, has like this phantom perfect person or phantom ex, like, this person Mm -hmm. is the perfect person or the person I'm going to choose is going to be this way. And it's different than how you are. There's like this fantasy image of a person that either exists or a person that you used to be with that for whatever, it's like, obviously you're not with the person anymore. So they must not be your perfect person. But I've heard a lot about that with um, unhealthy relationships, of a reference point of this image of who somebody should be um, that kind of puts you down. Um, but okay. So let's even pivot because I know that you are newlywed and you have a beautiful relationship and I have a beautiful relationship and I've gotten out of a toxic one. Yay. I know. (laughs) Well, and it's, it's so crazy because I just continue to realize finding the right person, you know, really is not about finding the right person. It's about saying no to the wrong one and having the space, you know, to find
1: that right one. Yeah. So
0: talk to me a little bit about like what shifted for you personally, where you were ready to step out of something that wasn't working for you and Uh really call in something that's healthy because... I know that that pivot point, a lot of women listening, a lot of men listening, maybe they're attracting the same thing. Like it's really unhealthy. They can't meet them. They feel like a desert waiting for the rain. They're being gaslit. You know, they think their sweater's red, but their partner says it's purple and they're starting to think their sweater's purple. (laughs) Like they're just so gaslit. Like what is the point where somebody steps out? And so I want to hear about what that pivot was for you.
1: Yes. A a couple of things, a combination of everything that we've talked about before for me now, the hard part is, depending on what your experience like is in life, in childhood and in your life, you can get highly comfortable with a high degree of discomfort. And so for me, I had to reach, we always shift when the pain of where we are feels worse than the pain of the change. And I hit that point. And you don't have to hit rock bottom. That is a bunch of BS. You can leverage your discomfort now and multiply it, right? Um, Tony Robbins does this exercise at his... Unleash power where for 30 minutes you're supposed to imagine a future time where you don't. If you don't make the changes now, you're living in the result of that. And people literally, like, talk about an empath's like worst nightmare. People are screaming and crying for like 30 minutes, imagining that. So we don't have to wait for our life to bottom out. We have to just think: if I stay here and this continues, what can the consequences be? And that's what I did. I looked around and I was like, okay this is not happening. This is not happening. This is affecting me this way. My energy is drained. If I don't do something about this now, what's going to happen to me? What could be the health consequences? What could be the consequences to my career? And I shifted. And I, and then I got very clear on what I did want. Mm -hmm. And that is a very vulnerable place to be. I have clients all the time. Like, tell me what you want. And they tell me some watered down, like, easily digestible version, because it's scary to want the fullness of what we desire. It's a mm-hmm. vulnerable place to be because we're afraid of disappointment. But I had to really like step into the fullness of my vision. I'm like, what do I want? I want adventure and I want stability. Mm-hmm. I want reliability and I want spontaneity. If I am these things, there has to be a partner who's going to match me there. And why, And I had to also get clear on my um, feelings about marriage. I didn't really know that I wanted it um, you know, I'm a therapist, child divorce. I see how hard it is. Women has, like statistically are less happy in marriage than men are. And I was like having all these things swirling around me and I'm like, why do I want a partnership? I want a partnership because I believe I have work to do in the world. And I believe that a partnership is about multiplying your gifts and i got clear on what a relationship was going to be for me and what it wasn't and when i took responsibility for my own happiness fully radically responsible for my own life and my own well-being someone else was off the hook and then someone else became a piece of my puzzle a piece of my pie but not my identity. And once those shifts were made, obviously through a lot of work and and also because of the unhealthy relationship, I I was forced to choose me. So thank God for him, right? And and then one, like, uh, I mean, it sounds crazy, but truly for me, the moment that I really took that action, spoke that truth, said those prayers, those things clicked, I met my partner and he is, a partner in the truest um, sense of the word, mm-hmm. and he is not the source of my happiness. He is not my be all and all. He is one of my most favorite, cherished relationships. He is such a big part of my life. But like it's a beautiful like he is him and I am me, and we come together. Versus mm-hmm. b- before in my wounding, I was looking to be chosen to be enough, and I chose myself. So now, some, everyone else is off the hook.
0: I love this, and I also just kind of love like this idea of like instead of having this void inside of you and looking at somebody to fill it and i I've met a couple of women who have confided to me that like financially maybe they want a guy to save them or. Mm -hmm. You know, not to be so gender trite. I mean, some men are looking for a sugar mama too, um, but it feels very much like there's a void and they want the Mm -hmm. other person to handle it. Um, There's also some level of inspiration. I know a lot of women who want to be mothers and they want a man that can contribute in a way that there's some support for that. So... What is your thought on having a sense of self and owning what you want so that each person is whole? Like, what do you think it takes for the, the per- one person and for you to each have inside of you that can create that wholeness?
1: Yeah, no, I love what you're talking about because you're talking about interdependence. It's not that there is no overlap. Yeah. It's that the overlap isn't necessary for a solid sense of self it's a chosen overlap. And I think that's the difference, right? If someone is coming in and completely valuing, like, this is how I'm going to serve the relationship. I'm going to be a mom. I'm going to be a kick-ass mom. And, and I want a compliment to support me in this way so I can s- show up in this way. And if both parties value that, then that is both being whole and a yin and a yang, and like mm. a compliment, right? Versus like I need you to do this for me to be okay. This oh. it's a difference between an agreement, right, and an unconscious looking for fulfillment. Ah, I love that distinction.
0: I that's think so that's good.
1: like right because if a man is like yeah, or a woman, I, obviously we are way ha- deep into gender stereotypes, but I think you can just apply this to whatever it is that you're looking for in a partner. Is if you're clear. And if you're healthy and solid in what you're bringing to the table, not in lack, but looking for a compliment, that's, I think, the place where it's, it's a mutually respectful, that's still a water wheel, right? But people are pouring in in different ways. Yeah, I love
0: that. That's so great. Okay. And kind of looking at um, this sense of peace, this is my favorite thing that you said, um, just that a good relationship tends to have a sense of peace. I really feel that in my relationship. I know we have some disagreements every now and again, and it really hurts when we do disagree. But the undertone of the relationship is peace and harmony and a really healthy cadence is how it feels. How can you kind of share for everybody listening what it looks like to have a sense of peace or how it really feels?
1: Yeah. And believe me, like I I am the person who did not have any experience of this, only knew it because I could see it in people around me. But like, I didn't know what that was like. That that felt completely foreign. And I think the best way we learn, we go about calling that in is we have to learn to develop that sense of peace within. How do, when we approach things, are we curious? Do we give the benefit of the doubt to ourselves? Do we stretch ourselves when we know we're not doing our best? Then when we have practice being that way within, for those of us who've never understood what it feels like to be in a peaceful coexistence with another person. We, we model that first within, and then we can say, okay, if I've created such peace within, then why would I be in a relationship that's going to, to potentially challenge or damage that? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's the flow. Like you and I were talking about before we even got on the call. It's like, it's not that there's never a disagreement. We, we, I disagree in my marriage But we have skills and tools and there's this undertone of respect and safety to disagree because we go about it in a way that does not create further damage. I love that. The safety
0: to disagree because Uh you you kind of talked about like, you know, Gottman from Gottman Institute and the guidelines around fighting and expression and kind of navigating that. Can you talk a little bit about healthy relationships and what it looks like when they go into repair mode from a fight? Yes.
1: So he talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Right. Mm -hmm. And the things that we do stonewalling and what the, one of the number one predicaments of, uh, potential marriages demise is eye rolling because it communicates lack of respect and disdain disdain. Right. So when you were talking about like peace, it does not mean that the waters never get rough. It's that Like when you're in a boat that's got a strong hull and feels solid, even if the water gets choppy, you feel a certain sense of peace that your boat's not going to be broken in half because it's strong enough, right? Mm -hmm. So when we are coming to a relationship with skills and developing the skills in the relationship because everyone has their own individual wounds and we have to learn how to tread lightly around people's trauma and like learn how to be receptive to that. But those are the skills that allow us to disagree while still doing it in a healthy way while mm-hmm. still maintaining peace. But when we are triggered and in our wounding and we're doing the things that, you know, Gottman talks about, like stonewalling someone, which is they upset you and you freaking ignore them for a week or, you know, when someone's expressing their feelings and we make them wrong and lash out and name call and, you know, roll our eyes, that's our wounding mm-hmm. and Because no matter what anyone else's behavior is, ours is our own responsibility.
0: Mm, I love this. This is so helpful. And I think a lot of people who are listening, okay, so as we're wrapping up, and if you could just give one message to anybody who's listening um, about relationships or what you wish for them, what would you care to share?
1: You know, as we were talking, I think what what I've come to and in my work with clients, it's like the responsibility that we have to do our work. And I know you might not have been taught this, believe me. I was taught the opposite of healthy. So we can always heal. We can always learn a new way of being. We can learn what is true for us. And yes, that's always evolving and always changing, but we can learn what our basic sort of expectations are I, non-negotiables, right? And when we learn those and we learn the skills to, to thoughtfully, with love and respect, communicate them, we can allow people to either meet us there or to indicate that they're not able to. And then we can move on to a partner that can. Mm-hmm. But the, the oneness is on us because we're the ones responsible for our lives to, to learn this way of being both with ourselves and with other people. So I think the thing that I would leave people with is, yes, it's hard. Yes, it feels messy. But I trust that everything that wasn't working is actually teaching you a lesson can ultimately be for your highest good. And as you continue to do the work to check in, like, hold on, this is really important to me. How do I share that? You are going to, by nature of that sharing, the effect is going to be that you are either going to level up in the relationship that you're in or you're going to get data, as we talked about, so that you can know what to do with this relationship to perhaps move on to someone who's able to meet you where you need to be. Oh. So a long-winded answer, but I no, think that's so good. the work that we have to be responsible for. Mm. If we want healthier relationships, and Lord knows that's the single greatest predictor of happiness is yeah. Connection. So mm-hmm. we got to work on it.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, totally. And I know a lot of people, um, everybody listening, she has really good videos on Instagram. Where can everybody find you? What's your handle and where's your website and who works with you?
1: So I am Tiffany.Louise on Instagram, TiffanyLouise.com. Um, I do have a private coaching practice and I work with people individually at this time. Um, there might be group offerings and webinars coming up in the next year. So stay tuned for that. But right now I work with people individually and, and sort of relationships tend to be a lot of it. It can work, career, anything. I've been working as a therapist for 20 years, so I don't do therapy in my practice anymore, but in coaching, I can sort of address a wide variety of sort of goals. Um, Yeah. And I'd love to connect with you on social media and just say hi. Oh, thank you. And guys tag
0: us if you listen to this episode and let us know what you thought or what you took out of it. I just love this topic. Tiffany, thanks again for being here with me. Thank you. You're so wonderful. Such a great interview. Ah, hello my friend i am just sitting here thinking all of the thoughts about tiffany's episode with me and i just found her science-backed approach to talking about toxic relationships to be so refreshing i thought it was so refreshing how she talked about the mouse experiment and how mice get more addicted to the unknown when they press a button than they do the stability and there's so many people that i know who don't realize it, but when you really look under the hood of their relationships, they're turned on by someone who isn't available for them. Uh, I was just sitting at dinner with a really close friend the other day, and her relationship has been really tumultuous these past, all of these months, and it's only recently that it started to stabilize. And it was really interesting for me when she talked about how stable it has become and in turn how bored she's become and you know toxic relationships are a lot of things but they're certainly not boring and i think a lot of us if we grew up in a house where the nest energy and this is a concept i bring up in my episode with tatiana ray if you've never heard of it but if you grew up in a house where the nest energy was unstable then there's a certain comfort that you might have in your life from instability and I think it's a really powerful move to ask yourself if that's your situation, because when we start to like instability, we start to bring it into our lives. And even worse, if we're not paying attention, we'll start to create it into our lives. So it's not just that we'll allow that person who brings instability into our lives, you know, but, and that's all projection, right? By allowing somebody to bring instability into your life, you're bringing instability into your life. But, um, to take things even deeper, it's like if instability is a comfort zone for us, we will tend to sabotage and create instability when things are stable. And you'll know this is you if when things are stable and easy, you're bored, underwhelmed, not attracted, not desiring someone, stuff like that. it's not to say that there could be other roots um, of the matter of if you're not attracted to somebody that maybe it's not for you, but It is to say, if you keep finding yourself attracted to people who aren't good for you, or if you're in a partnership right now where there's a lot of instability. And the funny thing about this is that you know if that's you. And when I was in a toxic relationship, I, I knew something was wrong with it. I just didn't want there to be. And it's that hope addiction that we fall into that keeps us stuck in careers and lives and results that we really don't want. And I find it incredibly impactful to be able to notice that, catch that, uh, and just be really aware of that. So my question to ask you today is, have you been in a toxic relationship or are you in one now? And um One thing that I just want to kind of repeat is this idea that you could be a totally healthy person and your partner could be a totally healthy person, but it's possible that there's something chemical in the equation that you two add up to that isn't good for each other. In a way, they could be good for someone else. You could be good for someone else, but together you're toxic. So sometimes someone will bring up our triggers and our wounds for us to heal, whereas other times they bring up things that bring out our worst and our toxic for our systems, for our being. And when we are repeatedly introducing ourselves into traumatic behavior or not getting what we need met, we create an imprint in our being that Knows itself as trauma that we carry with us into other relationships and it makes us sabotage them and many other things. So I hope to raise your awareness today of toxic relationships, whether you've been in one, um, whether you are in one. And I hope this message is to give you the courage to really love yourself and get out of a dynamic like that, no matter how painful it is, because the pain of your life lived long-term in a toxic relationship, what that's gonna do to your system is so much heavier than the pain you will feel in that momentary period of time where you release that person. And a a lot of the times that can be the most loving thing you can do to them and to yourself. So, uh, you know, I'll never forget getting out of my toxic relationship and that moment in the doctor's office where the doctor said hey you lost weight like you lost like six pounds like you just on a weight loss thing i said oh no i was with a guy that i don't think was really good and i'll never forget what her face looked like when she took her glasses off and she prized me she said good for you she said those are so hard to get out of and they are because like the mouse experiment they're addictive and I remember something really hit me and I was in tears by her response because it was almost like she was acknowledging it with a depth that I hadn't. And her gravity of looking at it gave me permission to really acknowledge what I'd put myself through, for lack of a better term. So I just want to offer you words of encouragement. And if you know someone that might be in a toxic relationship, uh, I encourage you to send this episode to them because this is a serious issue for all of our self esteems, our communities. I believe that a lot of people have good nature and they come into the world with a good nature. But some people are just this wrecking ball that even if their soul was pure when they came into the world, something happened with their own trauma and ultimately hurt people will continue to hurt hurt people. And uh, that's not your job or your responsibility to heal them, rescue them, save them, or be with them. So sending you love. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode.